before we get things started, let's take a little trip in the Wayback Machine, shall we? We'll be back next week when the Eagles will have crushed the New England Patriots and um, the Sixers will have throttled the Lakers and everything will be going swimmingly well in Philadelphia sports. Well, two out of three ain't bad. And now for this week's show. Sometimes in life, this is for Philadelphia! You have to make extremely difficult and soul-searching decisions. We're talking about So Mike Sielski nailed it. I'm Dave Murphy with the Philadelphia Daily News, joined by Mike Sielski with the Philadelphia Inquirer. Although, if you, you, you may have heard that we're actually one newsroom now, so... Yeah. I'm Dave Murphy with the Philadelphia Inquirer, and you're Mike Sielski with the, the Philadelphia, Philadelphia Daily, Daily News. News. Listen, there's three things we want to talk to talk about today. Uh, Sam Hinkie, number one. I don't know if you heard, but either he got a babysitter. Actually, they hired the babysitter for Sam Hinkie instead of Julio Okafor. Yes. Um, which I, th- I personally of- think that everyone is way overreacting to what this means with regards to Sam Hinkie, but that's just me, and maybe you disagree. Um, um, well, we'll get to Number that. two, we'll talk about Mr. DeMarco Murray. Oh, yes, we will. DeMarco, DeMarco, DeMarco. He... Uh, he picked an odd time to uh, make the case for. Well, I'll say this: his whoever his agent or whoever leaked the story, or father or, or fa- family member, picked, whoever. A, picked an odd time yeah. to leak the story. Or I mean, himself. I don't. I don't think that the. I don't think that. The, yeah, I mean, I think he was. The, the report was out before he even finished the conversation. But Edward or whatever. Regardless, we'll, we'll get to. We'll it. get to that. And thirdly, the Temple Stadium. Yes which I think all three of us are probably in agreement on. Um, and our agreement jibes with that of Hisner, the mayor. Yeah. Hisner elect. He's not quite the Hisner yet. Oh, might, be, might be the only thing I agree with Hisner about. <laughs> but anyway, let's start, let's start with DeMarco Murray. Okay. Where, where are you coming from on this? I'm coming from that if this season has shown us anything, it's that right now DeMarco Murray is the fourth best running back on this roster behind Ryan Matthews, Darren Sproles, and even Kenyon Barner based on the way Barner played against the Patriots, even in that small sample size. So the Eagles are really in a bad situation here. They can't cut him because the sunk cost would be so exorbitant um, that it would be prohibitive for them. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's just ridiculous. They can't do it. Even if it wasn't prohibitive, it's cheaper to keep him on the roster right. and not cut him. Exactly. It, you know, you'd be going out of your way to spend $5 million extra dollars rather than just keeping him around and deactivating him. Right. Every week. Um, and so the question to me becomes, it, it seemed very clear yes, uh, Tuesday, I should say, not yesterday, because we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon, um, that Pat Shermer wanted no parts of touching this. Right. He, he made it very, very clear what Murray's standing with, on the roster and amid the coaching staff was, which was, hey, he's just another guy right now. $40 million or not, you know, rushing championship or not, he's another guy. And while the Eagles clearly screwed up badly in the contract they gave him and in the reliance on him, this is where they are now. They're five and seven. You got to go with the best guys. That's Matthews. That's Sproles. That's even Barner ahead of Murray. If Murray doesn't touch the ball, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I mean, the one I would say that Demarco Murray should have gotten the ball on the carry that Kenyon Barner fumbled because Probably. Demarco Murray does not fumble. Yeah, um, or at least he hasn't, you know, in recent years. Uh, but but like you said, yeah. It's it's uh, I mean, it's it's silly to even talk about, it seems, because the, and I think that was kind of Pat Shermer's reaction. I think that they're more, um, you know, as I was about to say in the intro, I don't think it's a problem that DeMarco Murray addressed his standing with either the coach, which Chip Kelly said he did, 
um, or the owner. I think it, the problem was that it was leaked to the press after their biggest win of the season, right. um, after a win where everybody in the locker room was talking about how much of a team they are, how together they are. Uh, after DeMarco Murray himself said, albeit through gritted teeth, that the win is all that matters and he's a team guy. Only one, only the Eagles clearly would not have wanted this out there. The, it had to come from somebody close to DeMarco Murray. Absolutely. And if it was somebody who did it without his authorization, then he needs to have a little talking to with that person. Yeah. And, and I don't think that happened. I mean, I, I think Murray is a smart guy who, as described by Ed Werder, the ESPN reporter who, who broke this story, um, is, I'm sure, a prideful guy. He wants the ball. He wants to win. He wants all those things. But this is not, this is not what you do when you do it. Um, not coming off of this kind of win not with the season he's had. I mean, let's face it, he got the ball early in the season, and he still wasn't very good. Mm. Um, so the idea that he should be commanding the ball more now based on what he's done with his team is ludicrous on its face. And there was one play even in that game, because there was a drive, and, and I think this may have been the carry that got him benched for the rest of the game, um, for lack of a better word. But he, there was a drive, maybe their second drive, where he carried the ball three or four times, or at least was in the backfield three or four times. And there was a run on, a, I think it was an outside zone play that was the the epitome of everything that has been wrong with him this season. And frankly, throughout his entire NFL career, because I, I don't think the Eagles are blameless in this, because DeMarco Murray no. does not look a whole lot different than he has than he did with the Cowboys. He's just running a completely different scheme that is not suited to his running style. He's always been so, a soft runner for a power back. He's always run smaller than his size. That's Anybody who has watched him repeatedly knows this. The, the run I'm talking about, he was going around right end or right tackle, um, and he had a choice. He could cut it up. And I think you might have even tweeted I said about it, this. Yeah, you, I said I think it in you, the you press been, box. You said, yeah. Uh, yeah, somebody tweeted, you know, that, that could have gone for six yards. He got three yards on the play. If he would have cut and gone at the inside hip of the lead blocker, he would have at least gotten six yards. Instead, he bounced it outside and just had to fall forward and be content with what he had. And that right there is everything that has been wrong with DeMarco Murray this season. Yeah, and, and just... To, to take this out from a broader perspective, because the Eagles have a game coming up this week uh, on Sunday against the Buffalo Bills and LaShawn McCoy. You know, one of the big, the two big primary reasons that were offered at the time that the Eagles traded McCoy to Buffalo and then signed Murray was that A, Murray was going to be a better fit for this system because he didn't dilly dally in the backfield and just, you know, hit it up in the hole, as football coaches like to say. And that if, if you regarded McCoy as kind of this sometimes immature guy who, you know, probably exasperated Chip, you know, more than Chip would have liked. Well, Murray was going to be the team first, quiet, just do his job kind of guy. And in neither of those situations has come to pass. Don't forget, as recently as three weeks ago, we're discussing about how at least one of his teammates, uh, you know, questioned his effort during mm. the, the, the Dolphins game for sliding after getting a first down instead of turning the ball upfield and taking a hit to gain more yardage. Now you've got this situation. He's already a bigger problem this year than McCoy was in either of the two years under Chip Kelly. Go ahead, John. This is what I don't get. And and John, by the way, has been like a little kid trying to go to the bathroom <laughs> ooh, at ooh, first. Call grade. me, call me. Ooh, ooh. Jonathan? No, I, I, Jonathan, I, do you have something to say? I, I do, in fact, have something to say, yes. First of all, you go around saying, oh, but I don't want to make a scene. Right. When you go to Ed Werder of ESPN before you go to anybody else. This is part of why I can't trust DeMarco Murray in anything that he is saying or not saying right now. You can't do that and not know that it's going to make a scene. You have to know that's going to happen. And if my memory is right, and this was based off what, in fact, ESPN studio show folks were grilling Ed Werder about yesterday, 
One of the reasons why DeMarco Murray left the Cowboys, where he had been plenty comfortable, was straight up take more money from the Eagles. Right. Right. So he made that decision. He's got to live with it. Right. You know, and, and this is there, there's so many different things about the situation that bother me. Number one, from a self-loathing standpoint as a reporter, this is I hate this part of the job. Like, it's just like, it, yeah, look. Call this the Murphy theorem or whatever, but 99% of what you read from an unidentified source is out there to serve somebody's agenda. Exactly. It might be 100%. Um, you know, everything is leaked anymore. If, if something's out there, it's because people want it out there. Um, you know, Jerry Colangelo just happened to take everybody by surprise because the Sixers, for whatever reason, did not want it out there. The fact that this is out there tells you that they wanted it out there. Mm -hmm. They uh, being DeMarco and his people. Right. And usually this comes from the agent, but we don't know that for sure. So whatever. Um, but, you know, it makes a certain amount of uh, Machiavellian sense to get it out there right now because this absolutely guarantees that, just about guarantees that he will not be here next year. Right. Um, assuming somebody will give up even a seventh round draft pick for him. Uh, you know, this is how you engineer an exit. And if, that's, if that was the mandate that Murray gave his agent, um, you know, he better remember next time that this is this is how it's done, and it's yeah. not pretty, and it shouldn't be done when the Eagles are in the thick of a playoff race. And frankly, it's just it's just the whole our, our business sucks. It does. I mean, I, I agree with just about everything you said, and I think it's always important to keep that in mind. I actually wrote a column about this last year in the wake of the Ray Rice um, situation um, after TMZ got a hold of the video of the of him socking his fiance in the casino elevator, that the reason TMZ got that video was because there was nothing to be gained um, by anybody who, quote-unquote, covers the NFL as an insider um, to getting that video because the Adam Schefters, the Jay Glazers, the Ed Werders of the world are so closely aligned with a particular team or particular people throughout the league that they're less covering the league as they are part of it you know, they, they inhabit its kind of ecosystem. Yeah, it's why none of those people will ever question to set something up for later, the public financing of a football stadium. Right, but exactly. Anyway. But we'll get to that. But the other thing is that what I love about stories like this, and, and you touched on this, is this gets leaked purposefully, virtually no doubt. I, I You know, I would go 99.5% of times this is purposeful, that information like this gets out. So then... A bunch of reporters are standing in the Eagles locker room on Tuesday and DeMarco Murray comes in because he has to come in at some point. Right. Now he's orchestrated this or his people have orchestrated this and here we are waiting for him to set the record straight to say this is all wrong to say look here's what I feel blah 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 and he doesn't. He says I, I talk Thursdays fellas. Now I always find it amusing when we hear about manhood in the NFL yep. and we hear about how tough you have to be to play and you know you guys don't know in the media don't know what it's like because you don't play the game. Well, you know what? We do know what it's like to sign our name to things we sign our names to things we say or write. Yes. And to do it immediately and to be aware of the repercussions. Exactly. And that bothered me yesterday. That, that for all his character, supposed great character, DeMarco, and I'm not usually somebody who, who gets on athletes or executives for not talking. You know, I, it never bothered what they said. I'm right. never a guy who gets on them for what they said. It never bothered me that Sam Hankey, and we'll get to him right. in a minute, didn't want to discuss the draft and who the Sixers might pick. It didn't bother me. They were going to pick somebody eventually. He would discuss it then. That's fine. If he doesn't want to play the game of, you know, leaking this guy's name to affect the, the team that's picking ahead or behind the Sixers, fine by me. But this stuff, 
where you clearly have an agenda and you do it surreptitiously and then you can't talk about it like a man bugs me every time. I mean, if we're going to define manhood uh, in the traditional sense, which again, this is only operating on their terms because this is the word we always hear used to describe themselves. That's not being a man. That's being a whatever, Jonathan, you can play a sound because I would have used a but I'm ching. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Hink, yeah, you know, it's just like, it's, it's funny how all this ties together now that we actually start talking about it. But you know, I want to make it clear that you know, Edward has a job to do. I, mean, I don't right. know him. I'm sure he's a good guy. I'm not, I'm not ripping him at all. If I had what he had, I would have reported it. That being said, it's just our industry has gotten to a point where because Sam Hinky does not leak things to people, those people then whip themselves up into a frenzy and... I don't want to say railroad the guy, but I mean, there's just like no one. Look, people got on Donovan McNabb because nobody had a personal relationship with Donovan McNabb. And it was easy to get on him because you didn't lose any potential access. People did not get on Kevin Cobb that way, even though Kevin Cobb was a far inferior quarterback. Right. Because they liked him and he went fishing with them. And, he, you know, mm-hmm. and this is just like I mean, this is just encapsulates everything that that just bugs me about our business that essentially you know, you're, you're, you're expected to, to curry favor with the people that you cover in the hopes that they hand you a morsel of information every now and then. And, and the informa- when you do get handed that information, you're a pawn. You're a pawn of the system because it's only out there, you know, to, to, to wreak this kind of havoc that, that's being wrought right now by, by a, you know, with a team that should be looking forward to defending its potential right. first-place tie. It's, it's interesting because if you watch... Um, it's, I think it's an interesting distinction between those of us who cover sports all the time and those of us who cover politics or news or, you know, crime, something like that. For instance, not to take this too far flung, a couple weeks back I saw the movie Spotlight, mm-hmm. okay, which is about the Boston Globe's coverage of the Catholic Church's pedophilia scandal, okay? And a couple of times, and you, you would see this in journalistic movies all the time, all the president's men and the paper and things like that. There always comes a scene in these movies where the journalist basically says, well, I got to write this one way or another. And do you want to be on the right side of it or the wrong side of it? Okay. And from a news standpoint, that can from a non-sports standpoint, that sort of tactic can work because the story is going to come out anyway. And if you are the Catholic church, if you're a lawyer for the Catholic church, if you're somebody in the Nixon administration, whatever the case may be, you want to look, you know, you, you want to be on the right side of this because there's going to be major ramifications to this. In sports, and, cre- and disagree with me if you want, I almost feel like if you did that to somebody, if you say, look, I have this, and it's going to hurt you, and I need you to comment, they're going to say, go ahead, do it. I'm not going to comment. I dare you. And then you either can't run the story because you need their comment or confirmation, and then if you do, they'll go, you know, wage a PR battle with some other media entity that will spin things the way that right. they want it spun. I mean, were there, I mean, there's two things. Number one is a lot of the times in sports, you're you're dealing with people who are are themselves submit, submissive to people who are above them, right. control wise, whether right. it be their agents or their. I mean, I mean, players uh, players are not autocrats at all. They're they're hardly even autonomous. They come up they come up through these sports programs and these colleges and these high schools where every minute of their lives is dictated to them by by you know somebody who, right. who who is usually making more money than they are uh you know so it's it's tough to use that kind of rationale with an athlete because they literally they're, they're they set their worlds up so they don't have to think at all about anything except what's on film right you know? the, the Number, problem with that is though that once they get to the yeah. pros 
the, the situation reverses itself. The agent works for the athlete, not the other right. way around. Right. But I, but yeah, you're right. But they're so trained, they're so conditioned to to not really have to deal with kind of these prop that kind of proposition. And the and, and number two, I think that there's the one the one thing the one uh, area of news journalism that I think might defy that and might even actually resemble sports a little bit. The more I follow it as campaign journalism. Sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. The horse race end of things, as opposed to you know, does this idea for healthcare work or not? And am I um, knowledgeable enough with the system and economics and all that to actually say and write stories that analyze this? It's just well, what does Trump's you know proposition you know suggestion about banning Muslims from the United States right. mean for the presidential campaign and the race? And it's like, well, can we discuss like the constitutionality of that and why? you know, why it wouldn't work in the American government right. and societal traditions and sort, you know, that sort of Speaking thing. Speaking of which, people are probably saying, could you just discuss the Marco Murray? Which, let's do that. Okay. What should, what should they do about it? I mean, I, I, it's interesting because clearly they're perturbed that he put yes. this out there. And, yes. I, and, you know. They're perturbed in every I'm way you can be they, perturbed I'm curious if he's him. even active this week. I, I, they're perturbed in every way you can be perturbed with him. I mean, Shermer made that absolutely clear yesterday. And if, and excuse me, Tuesday. And Chip, it, I was not at his Chip's press conference today, Wednesday, but it sure sounded like he tried to walk that back. And, and literally walk out of the room. By yeah, and, and failed. Uh, you know, wasn't fooling anybody about where things stand. If I'm them, and Ryan Matthews is coming back, I'm going to give... Boy, I don't know. Now yeah, that I think about it's it. Tough. It's tough. Because they're in a situation where you can't make allowances anymore. Like, you need to play the best But players. at the same time, you're talking about, I mean, if, you know, speaking of things that get everybody worked up into a frenzy, you got a guy coming back from a concussion. Um, yeah. You know, and a guy who, frankly, has not been able to stay healthy his entire career. Um, and, you know, actually, his, his injury has, has kind of backed up the whole notion that he shouldn't have been getting 20 carries a game back right. during the first eight weeks of the season because this is just who Ryan Matthews is. Here, is DeMarco Murray active on Sunday? Yes. How many carries do you think he gets? Do you Ken, think? Or here's the question: Do you think Ken John Bonner fumbled away his spot on the depth chart? I don't. Okay. I don't. Uh, for reasons of background, he know Chip knows him from Oregon. Um, for reasons of performance, he looked good. He mm -hmm. looked good until he fumbled the ball. I know that you know that gets back to our Sam Bradford discussion. Other than the interceptions, he played great. But <laughs> it's true. I mean, he he hit the hole harder, faster than than Murray. Well, did. let me say this. Chip Kelly should not have brought DeMarco Murray in here. And frankly, I don't think that he should He should be... I think he should be trying to find a way to maximize DeMarco Murray's production. I don't think that I don't think that what they're doing right now is, is the ideal solution. I mean, clearly they won, and if it keeps working, great. But DeMarco Murray loves the stretch play, and he loves running from under... He loves running it from under center. And and in his couple of games where he actually had some good production, they, they, they featured that a little right. bit. Right. Part of the problem is they never throw the ball from under center, so it's hard to keep running from under center. But, you know, I just feel like Kelly has been a bit inflexible with his offense to, to accommodate this guy as well. That's true. And the other, th the other way you could use him if you're going to activate him is that, you know, you've got Sproul. If you're going to use Sproles to run the ball and return punts, and you're going to give the ball to Matthews because he's your fiercest, you know, strongest running back, then throw the ball to Murray out of right. the backfield. He's an excellent receiver. He's a better receiver as a running back than he is a running back as a running back. So throw the ball to him. Get yeah. him on that wheel route that, that's worked in the past. Yeah, I mean, they, they signed him for a reason. You know, and again, they panicked. And in hindsight, they they should not have. But they, they had a very real need for him. Right. Um, they had a need for a running back. Right. You, it wasn't going to be good enough to sign just Ryan Matthews. And they thought it was going to be Frank Gore. And Frank Gore said, hasta la vista. I'm not signing with you guys. Um, and then you're right. They had money to spend. They thought, well, we can take DeMarco Murray away from the Cowboys. It hurts the Cowboys, too. 
um, which it has, but that's not been enough of a trade-off for the failures of you know being able to integrate Murray into this system. It, Jonathan, does Darren Sproles get the most carries on Sunday? No, I think Matthews probably does. I think it's probably um, pretty equitably divided. Um, I don't think you're going to see a situation like Murray had a, you know, Matthews had a game where he had 24 carries earlier this season because Murray was out with an injury. Murray came back the following week or two and had 20 each of those games. One of those games was against the Redskins. Right. I don't think you're going to, I don't think you're going to see that um, out of this. I think you'll see a little bit of Matthews, a little bit of Sproles, a little bit of Murray. Which, quite honestly, in the offseason, I thought you were going to see more of. I really thought, getting back to what Murph said just a minute ago about the inflexibility of Kelly's offense, I really thought we were going to see an expanded rushing playbook from him this year. I, th- I really thought that there was going to be some way, and maybe not frequently, that you're going to see all three backs on the field at the same time, and it was going to be confusing for a defense, and and they were going to come out, and, and Sam Bradford was going to turn around, and you didn't know where he was going with the ball. It was just going to be one of these three guys had it, and we haven't seen any of that. It's been very basic. It's been very vanilla for the most part. I'm not sure why that is. Maybe it was Bradford needing to get acclimated. Maybe it was everybody needing to get acclimated. I'm not sure why. In fairness to both of them, I don't think anybody foresaw the struggles that the offensive, offensive line, line has. Yeah. So let's, I mean, let's not... I, you can only you can only use that as an excuse to a certain extent because the the yards per carry for for the three other running backs besides Demarco Murray have been very very good. Yes. Um, but the problem is their their best play has been a play that Demarco Murray does not necessarily run very well, which is that sweep or the outside zone. And um, you know, and they've needed a back that that hits the hole harder because the the, the interior of that line has just gotten manhandled. So they've been very they've struggled a lot running the you know zone under plays and and. Right, you know, which Jason Peters being hurt has has really hurt them as well. Right, and you can make that argument that I think I heard Lewis Riddick from ESPN make this case the other day, which was that, you know, the guards have been so bad, and Kelsey has really struggled as well, that if you're going to run anywhere, you're going to run behind Peters and Johnson when they're in there on the, at, you know, on the outside as the tackles, and that's not what Murray is good at. It's just not. You know, you need to be able to if you're going to run that stretch play, as you said, you need the guards in the interior of the line to be able to create a crease, right. and they're not creating those so, creases. So, you know, I think that DeMarco Murray is most at fault for getting this out into the public. You know, yes. I mean, it, it's, it's look, it's been a tough year for everybody. Uh, you know, guys are playing banged up. The last thing they want is the last thing they need is to look across the locker room and see a guy who is not on the bus celebrating with everybody else that they just beat the Patriots right. and are now suddenly back in the playoff race. Yeah, that's right. And I, I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see Sunday because there's going to be pressure. I think whether Chip admits it or not, there's going to be pressure to give him the ball because mm-hmm. the other guy across the line of scrimmage, LaShawn McCoy, is going to get it 25 times and he's going to break a few and. The idea that the Eagles are going to hold him to like 13 carries for 20 yards, I think, is far fetched because he is going to be up for this game. And he might just do a couple of celebratory dances and so on and so forth if it feels like it. <laughs> he might. Yeah, he it's, might. It's going to be a fascinating game because I have a lot of respect for the coach on the other side of the ball too. He 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 gets his players up for games and and you know I mean he's he's winning games with Tyrod Taylor. You know I mean yeah I, I have a little bit less respect for him. As I, a, I, thought, I, know, I honestly him. thought this game might get flexed at one point to prime time because it was going to be enough of a storyline for people. Yeah, um, but they already flexed Arizona. You know, Arizona's what eleven and two, ten and two, and um, you know the Eagles are back in first place now. So All right, but so, that so, game's been flexed. So anyway, we we mentioned Hinky. Yeah, and and this is another. This is something else that I wanted to get to because I'm again I find myself alone on an island. On an island. Um, I mean, the way I look at it, to me, the most revealing thing about Jerry Colangelo's press conference, and it, as 
I'm sure all three of you who are listening to this understand Jerry Colangelo was hired to be the uh, director of basketball operations, director of basketball operations, you know, advisor to the, you know, whatever chairman. I, his name is chairman though. Sam so Hickey's daddy. Is that what Marcus Hayes wrote? Yes. Yes. Chair, his name is, his title though is chairman, uh, which is what Bill Giles title is with the Phillies. And the most, to me, the most revealing part of that press conference was the last question when somebody thought to ask him, Oh, by the way, are you going to be living here? Or are you going back to Arizona? And, and he got a little bit kind of kind of defensive and said, well, you know, with technology, blah, blah, blah. the fact of the matter is this guy has a full time job with USA basketball. He's not leaving it. He's staying in Arizona. Arizona and Philly aren't even U.S. air hubs anymore. Uh, look, I'm sure Jerry Colangelo is a Skype expert, but can we really take him? You know, is this really all that damaging to Sam Hinkie? Um, is this really a uh, this, this is not a Howie Rosemanfication um, of Sam Hankey in my mind, because they didn't bring Howie Roseman up at the press conference table and sit him there next to Chip Kelly when they, when they right. made the move. I, I don't think it's quite as um, bad for Hankey's future as people are making it out to be. I don't think it's good in the sense that he has clearly lost a measure of standing and power within the organization. He's got, he's got somebody to kind of watch over him right. now, clearly. Okay. But, I do think that there are some extenuating factors here that need to be taken into consideration. If the Sixers were, instead of being one and twenty-one, if they were three and nineteen, or if they were four and eighteen, which is what the Lakers are, right? Right. Or five and sixteen. Or whatever the like, case like may the be. Like the team they traded Drew Holiday for. Yes. Um, and Julio Okafor were sitting in his room, his hotel room each night, playing backgammon with his dad. Nobody plays backgammon anymore. All right, checkers. All right. Um, this would not have happened. Josh Harris admitted during the press conference that this all came together. This began a week and a half ago. Nobody gets hired in a week and a half. Like you can't, the, the, the local Acme can't hire a deli clerk in a week and a half. It just doesn't happen. So what happened a week and a half ago that precipitated this? The Julia Okafor incidents, okay? The, the videos on TMZ and, you know, the speeding and all that stuff. So what pressured Harris to do this? Was it just, hey, we need to bring in somebody? No, it was, as reporting but has to, shown, the NBA. But to, to me... So, so the question, because just let me finish this thought. So the question becomes, did the Sixers really think that there was something going wrong here? Or did the league go to them and say, look, go to Josh Harris and say, look, this is an embarrassment. We consider this an embarrassment, what's happening with you guys. And rather, to me, rather than take the necessary step and the harder step to say, let's change our draft system so that franchises can't do... This is the NBA you're talking yes, about. Yes. Can't do what the Sixers have done because our owners don't like it. Except they Est do. Ostensibly. Ostensibly they don't like it. Let's paper this over with a guy who's a longtime friend and colleague of David Stern, a, a, a man who respects Adam Silver, and a guy who over his 40 years in the NBA handled some major crisis management issues including a drug scandal with the Phoenix Suns in the late 1980s. Well, yeah. Because it looks better this way. But that's, that's the whole, the whole notion, I think, of appearance is, is, is correct. Because you, know do you know who does get hired in a week and a half? Is PR crisis professionals. Yep. And that, to me, is, ex I mean, even just watching, watching that press conference, that's what it, it looked like, you know, Whatever the Tylenol, the Tylenol crisis, any of that stuff. They right. bring in a guy that the public trusts, yep. that the public respects, that the public will listen to, so that when he tells you, you know, Sam's 
Sam's doing all right. I, I approve of this. Then they listen. Uh, who What's talks, the public? I think what this is. Look, there's there's a number. There's a number number of different. See, I call it the establishment. Um, and it's I, a better word for it, definitely. Yeah. I think that, uh, and frankly, I don't think that the NBA necessarily cares that the Sixers are tanking. I think they care that they're making it so obvious and yes. that it's become such yeah. a big storyline. I think all the NBA cares about is is the value of its brand and the, fill, the, the, the Sixers are diminishing that. And I think that regardless of who went to who, at some point, Josh Harris looked around and read all these. He asked the same thing that everybody else was asking is, actually, who's going to? Who's going to talk about this? You know, yeah. he's, he said, I mean, Jan- Sam Hinkie has made it clear he doesn't like dealing with the media and he's a basketball guy. I mean, he, he's the president of basketball operations. He's not the pr- he's not David Montgomery. You know, right. he's not out there at, at Philly's charity events. You know, he's he's the guy who was not at that table. Scott O'Neill. Right. I mean, he, to me, he's the he is the obvious guy who this replaces. And yeah. and somebody had it might have been you. Somebody had had noted that that he has been kind of missing in action since you're you're. Yeah. You sandbagged them in that oh, interview. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> uh, don't get me started on you, that. You were talking earlier about... No, I was just kidding, but yeah, I, was, I, I was being... I know. You were talking earlier about overreactions. All right, but wait, wait, wait. wait yeah, go ahead. To finish that. So Scott O'Neill is the guy that nobody really talks about because everyone's so eager to, to, to dance on Hinky's grave. But the fact of the matter is, of all the people in the Sixers on front office, one of them wasn't up there. It was the guy who probably should have been out in front on the uh, Julio Okafor stuff with the organization's point of view. And Sam Hinkie was out there. And I think that even if it was the NBA going, I think the NBA is concerned that that maybe Hinkie is the devil on uh, Josh Harris's shoulder whispering in his ear. And Josh Harris is just under his sway and doesn't have any other checks and balances on the opinion he's being fed. And, and I think maybe the NBA sees some value in Jerry Colangelo being that just so he has someone else to say to say to hey this is what sam says you know what do you think is this crazy but but i don't know that that matters i just think that that's what he's there for to kind of you know just be the guy you know be be that be that the elder statesman if you will right i think you're right i think look there there's to me there are multiple levels to this thing in the sense that the sixers are so deep into the process pardon me that the idea that they are going to whack hinky in a year or even before the season is over, to me, rings totally false, okay? They're probably going to get three, if not four, first-round picks next year. Hinky made that happen. Now, you, you know, we can talk, I, I, and I also think that there are two separate things here. There's the process of them trying to build a better program, you know, basketball program for down the road. There's how they handle the PR of that, as you right. alluded to, Okay. Hinky clearly doesn't like that part of it. It's not that, even that he doesn't like it. It's that he, doesn't he, want, he sees no use, use for it. it. And I think now he's realizing that there is a use for it. Right. Um, and, and you saw that on two levels. Number one, I, it mystified me that he did not say anything in New York about the Okafor situation. That was the opportunity. If he comes out and says to those to Marcus Hayes and John Finger and all those guys, all right, look, you know, I wrote the press release, but here's what else I have to say. I can answer some of your questions. That would have dissipated everything, and it would have shown, like, hey, look, okay, but he's in control make, a little bit, that, whatever. It could make sense if you consider that perhaps he was aware that they were talking to Colangelo and he was being brought in, and, and they were essentially saying, hey, just just stay out of the public for right now. We're finishing I think mo- as much of it was Brett Brown always talks. Brett Brown is talking right, right now. I'll let Brett talk. Which, and we can take this in a whole other direction. Brett, Brett works for Sam. Sam's the guy who drafted Julio Okafor. Sam should be the one who have addressed that at least once. But be that as it may, 
you you have this other situation where, and I think your point about O'Neill is really, really prescient, which is when O'Neill talked to me and Dan Gelston a couple weeks back and basically said, we don't bleeping, I don't bleeping understand why people don't get what we're doing. Yeah, for, the, for those who are on word, Mike, Mike, Mike and Dan Gelston of the AP talked to Scott O'Neill after, and uh, I don't know if it was an analytics conference. It was, yeah. it was, it was a uh, analytics concert conference here in town. Uh, and, and Scott O'Neill kind of, was incredulous I, that people yeah. didn't get but what he, the Sixers were but doing. But he expressed himself in words that, that that there was some speculation afterwards that the Sixers weren't exactly pleased with. Yeah, that, I think that's true on multiple levels. So, and so anyway, so he has been the face of defending the Sixers at every turn. It hasn't been Hinky. He's been the architect of this. Um, but it's been O'Neill who goes on WIP and 97.5 and gives the interviews and um, you know, all that sort of thing to kind of get the message out there. And admittedly, it's, it can be a difficult message to sell because they don't have a lot right now to be able to say, hey, you can get excited about this. You know, that's why they were so quick last season to post and tweet those vines of Joel Embiid putting the ball through his legs and dunking because what else do you have? We don't have anything else. Michael Carter-Williams, before we traded him, is not very good. Um, Neron's Noel doesn't do enough on the offensive end for us to post a vine of him throwing down a dunk over Dwight Howard. We don't have anything. Oh, the savior's putting the ball through his legs and warmups. Let's go but, with that. But that's so, and this is what no one, I really think that, 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 you know, art, the media end of the establishment, most of a lot of people who I really have a lot of respect for are just for some reason, so blinded by their antipathy for Hinky. I don't know if it's, you know, with the tanking necessarily, or because he doesn't talk to them about it, or or he acts like he's better than them. But you know, they're, they're it's gotten to the point where people won't even admit that Hinky does plan to win someday. And, right. and that's I, I always ask him. I'm like, well, do you really think his plan is to lose every year, or do you think his plan was let's not lock ourselves into big long contracts? Uh, you know, hopefully we'll get a couple high draft picks, and then he just happened to have to draft a guy. You know, two guys who couldn't play for a year. One guy who was in Turkey. You know, that's just the way the board fell. And people, the irony of all of this is, I think what's going to end up happening is, uh, Colangelo is going to get all the credit when they go right. out and and sign all these veterans next year and build a very good, you know, build a build a playoff contending team around whatever nucleus they end up with out of the draft. And if MB comes back, and and for, if you look at it, there's nothing else they could have done. I mean, right. at some point, you know, you need to start. You know, you need to surround these guys. But right now, look at the Pelicans. You, you mentioned the Pelicans. They're six and fifteen. They have the best, you know, the best young player in basketball in uh, Anthony Davis. They have Drew Holiday, who everyone rips Hinky for for trading him away. And they they could not stop a, I don't I don't know what it's a good metaphor is, but they can't play defense. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah. and they're six and fifteen, and they're everything that the Sixers don't want to be. And I just don't understand what people think Hinky's end game is. Is it? Does he really think it's just to run this team in the ground and dance on its ashes? I mean, yeah. what? What is it? I, I don't know. Go ahead, John. I have a hunch. Um, the establishment, which are mostly older people, uh, and this goes back to the generational divide among the Sixers fan base and such that we discussed on past shows. Um, they call the Sixers a quote-unquote legendary franchise. A iconic franchise, a cornerstone franchise of the NBA, which I was born in 1983. All three of us in the room were born more recently than to pick two not at all random names out of the air, Bob Ryan and Tony Kornheiser. Right. Um, have stunk yeah. for most of our lives. In fact, almost all of our lives flat out stunk. And so they believe that somehow because it's their beloved NBA, 
that they can't see is in fact broken yeah. in so many ways. Well, that, yeah. because, because the television ratings are up and the revenues are up and everything else. So the NBA is going great, except below the surface it's broken. I think there's three. I think there's, this is a multi-headed monster and it all comes back to something very you know, reductive and basic. And that's that there's a generation, not, not necessarily, there, there are people who do not like what sports are becoming, who, who do not like what the new game is, which right. is an economic game, which is an analytic game which is a game in which it's a game of game theory. And in game theory, all information is valuable. And a guy like Sam Hinkie says, why am I going to even talk to the media? It's not going to get me anything. Right. Uh, you know, they don't like that. They want Ed Fancy talking about Pats and Geno's cuz. Right. They, they want Billy King. They want Doug Collins. They want guys who are going to, you know, like I remember when we used to go to the palestra and shoot around. Like that's like kind of like, that's what the Sixers are. They are everything that that is not now. And they are they are the they are the dark empire, and I think that's what people hate. And and even if they can't admit that, you know, I think I think that's why it seems so irrational because that at the root is what where all of this comes from. And, and they t people twist themselves into knots trying to hate everything that Sam Hinkie does, even though. There's a there's look at the look at the Golden State Warriors. They were really bad in 2011, 2012. It and, turn, and it for turn, years and years and years and years before that, it, right. it turns around very fast. And right. and. Just this notion that 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 he doesn't want to win right. at all ever is crazy. And, and, and the analytics crowd overlooks the fact that you do still have to make free throws ultimately. And this is the question that I have about the analytics crowd and things that may have precipitated all of this with Colangelo and so forth. One is the fact that Josh Harris's profile is now established well beyond the NBA. He owns the New Jersey Devils and a fairly large share of a very prominent English soccer team. The second part is the firing of Kevin McHale in Houston, where that team was engineered, mm -hmm. and that's the, you know, in the way that Sam Hickey is trying to do with the Sixers. And McHale was fired, supposedly, because he wasn't getting the best out of the players. And that set off this traditional crowd, which then could go to Hickey and said, hey, they're your boys in Houston. They're not doing it. And then it compounded the pressure even more, which leads to what we got right now which is almost an intentional overreaction, including all of the agents coming out of the woodwork in Keith Pompey's column uh, in the Inquirer on Wednesday morning, beating the stuffing out of Hinky, and they're the same agents who we've been talking about for weeks now whose players aren't actually that good. Well, I, that, that is an interesting question in that I do think there is something to be said for there is a good old boys network in every league, certainly in the NBA, and so you have to, you do have to be able to negotiate that a little bit. Mm. And so I think Colangelo is a huge help in that regard. He is as old and, you know, he is as old boy as an old boy gets. Absolutely. Okay. When it comes to dealing with agents and other GMs. And which they made I, no bones about that's why they brought him in. Right. And he I mean, is. He looks like he should be sitting on a rocking chair drinking sweet tea <laughs> while, while, uh. Well, look, about Pete Maravich, Pistol Pete, you know, I understand. plays down the, with his look, high the guy socks. Is a, the guy's a giant in the game, and and he is. Oh, I have utmost respect for him. Yeah, I'm um, saying he looks like a good old boy. He does. So, so that is part of it, and and in that regard, I think it is good that the Sixers did that because clearly, based on Keith's reporting in particular, that's become an issue around the league. The yeah, why idea, didn't they do it earlier? That's another. You know, like, why hasn't this guy been here the whole? I mean, maybe I guess Josh Harris was supposed to be that guy. Maybe, maybe they felt like Sam could, Hickey could do it himself. Um, maybe, you know, as part of the, when the tank is in full swing, um, it's one thing to, to have an agent call you and say, hey, why don't you sign my veteran point guard and have, have Hickey say, sorry, not interested, but we got a young guy. But 
after three years of that, you start to worry that the relationships that, are so bad. And that, I think but talk we, about the economic yeah. system, because that's what this comes down to. I mean, this is this is. Uh, do people want this? Do people want this team to sign Andre Iguodala to a max contract again? Like, did they want the problem? Is you have to in, in the NBA roster spots are so tight. There's seven, six or seven guys that contribute. Where, you're, where all your resources go, you can't waste one of those spots on somebody who is not an optimal fit for that because it will set you back for the five, four or five years, whatever the length of the deal is. Right, right. I so mean, could you, could make, you have gotten a guy for a year, though? Could yeah. you have gotten a veteran? Okay, so... But if, if you're making the playoffs for some amount of time, you're peddling, quote-unquote, hope to that establishment. And I think what might have done it in terms of precipitating further the need for Colangelo was playing the odds of the draft, and twice getting screwed. I think that's part of it. I think, you know what so else have, I think? They have to go out and sign a guard. You know what else I think is part of it? And, and our colleague Zach Berman raised this to me yesterday. Josh Harris lives in New York City. What's the big, the, first, the, the Knicks are the second biggest thing in New York sports to the Yankees. What's the biggest story this year in New York sports? Porzingis. Mr. Porzingis, their rookie seven foot three center, who's playing very, very well on a team that was not very good last year, but also has more NBA-ready talent than the Sixers do. And so what Josh Harris is hearing is, you guys didn't draft Porzingis, you guys drafted Okafor. Okafor's struggling. Okafor's you know, involved in bar fights. Okafor's driving 108 miles an hour. You know, here's, here's Christoph Porzingis, and he's with Carmelo Anthony, and he's the talk of New York, and you guys could have had him and you didn't take him. And, and what, where, Knicks, what factor is that in there, too? The Knicks were booed relentlessly when they took Porzingis because... Nobody had heard of him at the time. Right. Well, that, not that gets, because he was good or not, but because nobody had heard of that him. That gets to my theory. It's a really interesting question because I think if you shot Hanky up with sodium pentothal and forced him to tell you the truth. I would call the cops because I think that <laughs> would be illegal. I think he would tell you that he doesn't regret much of what he's done so far. He is a true believer in that regard. And I think he's the kind of guy, and I don't think people appreciate this about him, that... Puts his head on the pillow at night saying, hey, I did it the way I wanted to do it. I didn't give in. This is what I believe in, and I'm going to follow it through. And Howard Eskin can scream about me, and Marcus Hayes can write his columns about me, and that sort of thing, and that's fine. I'll deal with it because what I trust that what I'm doing is the right thing to do. The key question in my eyes, and I don't know that you'd ever get an answer to this, is whether the Sixers felt like they couldn't take Porzingis with the number three pick last year because he was a white European player and they already have a white European player who hasn't come over for two years. And the perception at the time was Porzingis isn't as ready as Jaleel Okafor. And I don't know. I'd like to, I, there's a part of That's me that says, there's a part of me that says Hinky would have done it anyway if he really thought Porzingis was the best player. But there's another part of me that says, boy, you're going to leave Jaleel, in that moment, you're going to leave Jaleel Okafor from Duke, the best post player in the draft on the board. I, I don't they, know. I think they made the right decision, but I think, I think it started. When they got screwed out of Andrew Wiggins, right, right, but, uh, all right. That's good. That's what. That's because let's let's talk. Let's talk. Sure. Why not? I've said this before. The number one thing that has set back the rebuild was having to take Joel Embiid that year. This mm-hmm. was never supposed to be. Think about it. If Joel, if if Joel Embiid is playing with Jaleel Okafor this year, you know, either either he's been traded for assets or he's actually playing with them. And at that point, you have no choice but to try to win games because you're, you know, you're, you're. That's right. it. Like you, you I mean. You can't help but do it, you right. know. The pro, it got set back that year when they had to take a guy, and I say they had to take a guy. Look, at, tell me who else was taken below him that that they would be any better right. with right now. And what's what's interesting about that dynamic too is that 
you know, you hear the argument a lot of times that, well, you know, it's baloney that, that Embiid was, you know, Hinky's justification always was we felt like we got the kind of talent at number three that would have been the number one overall pick if he were healthy and people poo poo that. It's actually not true. If you go back and look at, I know this because I read the story, I was working there, I think at the time, the Wall Street Journal did a huge profile of Joel Embiid in January of his, of that season, the January before the draft. And it was the first time that anybody mentioned that this guy could be the number one overall pick if he stayed healthy. And the dynamic of that draft changed at that point because all of a sudden it was like, whoa, everybody thought Wiggins was going to be the number one overall pick. But now there's this guy, Joel Embiid, that nobody really knew about, but look at him. Whoa, he's moving up draft boards. So I think there's there's validity to what you're saying, this idea of if the Sixers had gotten the number one overall pick, they were anticipating they've got the best of all worlds. If Embiid is healthy, we might take him. But if he's not, we can take Wiggins. Once you get down to number three, as you said, Murph, that, that's off the table. Like, you take the talent and hope that but, it gets healthy. But I, and I guess, I guess the whole... I, I'm not sure that all of this is about getting the number one overall pick and Hanky has quote unquote gotten screwed the last couple of years. I Hanky is a smart enough guy where he understands what the odds were of doing this. This this to me was more about not locking yourself to any in, into any long term deals. Uh, you know, so you could acquire, you know, so you could have the maximum amount of trade flexibility. You can have a maximum amount of contract flexibility once you do get your young players and once you get you do you get your young players in the fold. And I think why. Uh, Josh Harris felt felt justified in acting this year was that when he talked to Sam Hankey and hired him, I am sure the pitch was, "Look, it's going to be a two-year thing. We're gonna we're gonna get two high draft pick, or you know, we'll, we'll have this year's high draft pick, and then we'll have two more, and then at that point, you know, we'll have three young guys that at the very worst will be part of our six or seven man rotation, and we can start building. And then year three is when people actually we start showing improvement. And problem is, year three is now next year because Joel Embiid, I mean, because they. Like they couldn't again. They got they got unlucky. I think when they had to pick three that year, and right. when Joel Embiid came down with back and foot problems. You know, it, look, they get, they got the wrong draft. If they're picking third in, in a lot of other drafts, they're you know, right. That's all, right. all they had to do was get second that year. Then they've got one of Wiggins or Parker. And they're, you, you I'm not said, convinced. You know, I'm not convinced they take Parker over Embiid. You don't think so? I, I think there's a part. Uh, I had this conversation with Hinky one time, and he put it to me this way. He said. Do you take a guy, do you take the lesser player because he's going to play right away? Because the lesser player might get hurt too. At the time he said this to me, Parker was out last year with an injury with the Bucks, And so he basically said, like, look at the Bucks right now. They took the person that everybody regarded to be the less talented player. We took the guy, and he was healthy at the time. We took the guy who was more talented but hurt. Now where do things stand? The less talented guy is hurt. Who do you think got the better of that deal? Oh, sure. I, I just, I'm more thinking positionally than talent-wise. And and because you've said to me for a long time now, of all the various draft picks, Joel Embiid is the one that has to work out. Yes, I agree. I, I do believe so that. so far it hasn't. Yes, but that doesn't mean, A, it can't. And no, it doesn't mean... But they've that. got three big men now. And that's and if they go get Simmons, they're going to theoretically have a fourth, even though who knows... Well, then you, have, then you have an unbelievably great choice to make. Yeah, presumably, always, if if Simmons is as good as everybody says, you always he is. take the best player available. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm with you. I just I I I wonder, and we all do. I mean, I just, look look. There's another thing in this too, where 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 the problem is like our society's become this like binary proposition where everyone has to like get under one tent or another. Where you can be, I agree with 
Sam Hinkie's overall philosophy and yeah. just about everything he's done. He might be an awful talent evaluator. I don't know. I mean, right. you, you still have to scout and pick the right guys. Like just just because the guy's overall philosophy is correct doesn't mean he's any good at his job and executing. Right. And you know, and, and it, that's it's it's good that you point that out because I actually that was the dilemma. Not to get meta again, but that was the dilemma I faced <laughs> after, the, here, after the Okafor thing, because I've defended Hinky's reticence in the past. Like, how, you know, how much good does it do? How much insight does it provide for him to do a five-minute radio interview on WIP or 97.5 just to assuage Mike Missanelli or Angelo Cataldi? Um, but then you have a situation like the Okafor scandal, so to speak, where he really should have come out and spoken about it. I mean, he's he's the point man, you know, for acquiring personnel and players— his most important acquisition thus far was involved in something not so good. He should have been out there talking about it. And I do think that there's another issue with respect to Colangelo, which is, um, and this gets back to what we discussed last week about older players and their influence and things like that and whether the Sixers should have had, at a minimum, whether you think the Sixers should have had a veteran or two on the roster or you think that it doesn't make much of a difference, there is some kind of climate there where Okafor felt like, I can do this and it's not going to be a big deal. And that I put on the Sixers and Hinky. And you can, again, same, just like you said, Murph, you can think that his draft strategy is solid and logical and sound, and you can still say, well, you got to create conditions where these, once you get these young guys, they can thrive. And that's, so far, it seems, has not happened with Julio Okafor. And I don't put it on Hinky because of Hinky. I put it on Hinky because he's the general manager, and the person in that role in the organization either has to be the one accountable or specifically delegate who is. But to, but, but to put a well on this, I think what it comes down to is no matter all these variables we discussed, to me what it comes – the end of it in any situation is, is the Sixers have no choice but to start improving next year. Right. And, and regardless of what so, – so, you know, when people say, ah, this is, you know, hinky time is over. Well, it really was over already. Yeah. I mean, they got – you know, they, they're, they're going to have a top five pick next – or top three pick next year. They, they got – you know, they have Noel. They have – you know, I don't think I don't know that you can plan on Embiid ever playing. Not only just because of the foot, but because of the back, and he hasn't played in right. in two years. But you know, even with with Okafor, Noel, and whatever and whatever guy they get next year, they, you've got three players who will be on the court at all times who are are supposedly pretty good. You know, at that point, it makes no sense to keep losing games. You know, right. and I no, think exactly. I, and, and we haven't even mentioned Sarge coming over, which presumably is going to happen and right exactly so, so so at that point like you're good that team if, the, if those four players are healthy and don't forget about Embiid they're they're in that eastern conference you know they can't help but win some basketball games right, yeah. you know right. and, and you know so you, and maybe that becomes the right. time where you go get a veteran point guard right. who you know you the, sign for two years or something and, and like you've that. got him backing up Chris Dunn or whoever it may be if they if they hopefully get another pick that well, high which maybe that's why and, and maybe that maybe maybe it is about you know, Hinky's talent evaluation. Maybe Colangelo. It can't hurt. Like, as Hinky said, I, it can't hurt, but to have Colangelo there to offer some 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 wisdom. But I just think we're overreacting when, uh, you know, we ignore the fact that Sam Hinky was sitting there at the table, and if you really wanted to cut right. his feet, feet off, you would not invite him. to the Especially press when the presumptive replacement for Sam Hinky is Brian Colangelo, Jerry's son, who drafted Andre Bargnani with the number right. one overall pick for the Toronto Raptors. Let's be honest here, you know. The grass is greener, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Speaking of grass and green things. <laughs> Speaking of yeah. grass. I just wanted to say, Temple, don't build your stupid stadium. Don't do it. God, I mean, don't just, do it. Like, can you believe in this? In this, Our higher education system is just... This, is one of your, this, this, by the way, for anybody who doesn't know this, this is one of David Murphy's all-time favorite topics. It, it's not favorite. It's, just, it's depressing. It's the fact that we have a, we have a high, system of higher education where a state-funded university 
that subsists almost entirely on state dollars and federal student loan dollars can choose to allocate $100 million to a stadium is just unconscionable. Unconscionable. And, 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 we, it's, and, and a lot, even if a lot of that money is being fundraised, first of all, we have first no— First of all, it's we, never, we, it's we never, know, never most of the money. We is don't there. know where it's coming from. It would be nice to know a little something about where it's coming from. A lot of people have guesses and hunches. You know where it's going to come from? It's going to come out of the students' pockets. It's going to come out of, out of a theater, Sure, but I mean, it I, mean, in, I mean in terms of the commitments that they supposedly have lined up already. First would, of all, commi- commitments are commitments. It would Commit- be nice to know one name. That's you, know you know what a commitment is? You know what a commitment is? Money in the bank. That's a commitment. This is. I, I spent a lot of time one day, oh, a couple days actually, reading Everything that that UConn and and Akron and Toledo, all these teams, uh, USF or not USF, uh, UCF, uh, FIU, uh, all these teams, FAU was another one. It's always the same. It gets it gets leaked late in the season. We all we have we have commitments lined up. This is not going to cost anything out of student. You know, yada yada yada. It's going to pay for itself. A, it never pays for itself. Nothing in sports in amateur sports ever pays for itself except for the university of texas athletic department and maybe 10 others uh and this is and this is temple like we're, we're talking about temple temple football this is yeah. temple. in two years there's a good chance that everyone the temples of the world are playing one double a because the 30 to 50 big programs who people actually want to watch on television are going to sign their own television contract and cut everybody else out of the money. Then what are you going to do at your stadium? And they think they're going to be, they thought for years now that they're going to get into one of those leagues by, okay, this is me, me unfiltered and I'm not normally unfiltered on this show and so forth, <laughs> but I'm going to do this. Look out everybody. <laughs> so my biggest object, my, I have a couple of big objections here. One as has been reported on, including in the Enquirer on Wednesday morning, there are a lot of students who are protesting this, who don't want it. They want the faculty and staff to be paid more, the minimum wage on the campus to be raised, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do all of, my thing is do all of those things, the $15 an hour wage, which is way beyond sports, and if the listeners want to tell me to shut up, whatever, but anyway, do all of those things, and then and we can talk. certainly pay their adjuncts more. Yes, and... Says the former adjunct said the professor. the former adjunct, yes. <laughs> the... I believe my memory is right in reading some of the original stories about this. Their plan was to go to Harrisburg and ask for some amount of millions of dollars of state money of a state legislature, which is packed with Penn State alumni who probably have no interest in seeing Temple or any other football program in the state, including Pittsburgh, be any good. And I suspect... In a state that can't pass a budget, by the way. First of all, it doesn't matter what... Forget about earmarks and everything. Yeah. They 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 are a state-funded university, and the substitution effect says that even if they're not even if they're not spending, you know, state dollars on the stadium. Well, guess what? They're spending state dollars on something that they would be spending on something else, and I, now I they're know. spending on the money. I know. It's, it's a- 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 and I went through this in Texas, and they got away with a lot of what they did because Rick Perry, who was an A and M alum, was the governor at the time. But at least but to, to finish, money. To finish yeah. the thought. If my memory is right, and I'm sure you two, having also not gone to Penn State or Temple, can help me with this. Back at the time, a number of Temple alumni were informing their state legislatures that they did not go to Penn State, and that some of the ways in which the legislators in this state were behaving toward Penn State at the time didn't really appeal to them. Now, these same legislators who went to Penn State, who are going to be now petitioned by the Temple alumni to do them a very big favor, why would they? 
Well, it doesn't matter. Among, the, the among fact other, is, that's something that I've had in my mind for a while. And then you have everybody else in – we'll start in the city, but we'll stay in the state. So certainly in the city who did not go to Temple or Penn State or, any, or whatever it may be. It just if – they, if they are able to line up all $100 million from private donors, I'm not going to stand in their way. I think I have – you can have issues with – what they do to the neighborhood and so forth. But if they legitimately line up all of, were to line up all of the money from private donors, so be it. It never It's and, clear that they're the, not. But, but the, it the, never the, happens. The city, the city lined up all the money to fund the Pope visit. And you know what happened? They, they ended up spending $8 million. Uh, and as, a, as, as somebody who does not go to church, that offends me. Uh, well, I think you, you know? would find a lot of, in, in a lot of these things, you will find plenty of taxpayers who will be fine with those kinds of expenditures. But it's not about this the, one, this the, one, I'm not so sure about. Right, but what I'm my point wasn't my point wasn't that that we shouldn't be spending money on the pope visit. My point was that uh, anytime somebody says it's not going to we never count oh, yeah. the un, we sure. never count the unintended costs. Right. And 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 every January think, 1st that, we never count to, the unintended to, costs. To, to think that t the Temple Owls will somehow be the first right. first school to break the mold is just ludicrous. It is. And it's and what we're missing the, the other component we haven't discussed here yet is you're doing it in the middle of Philadelphia. Like, this is not state college. Like, like Penn State rises to prominence as a football program around Joe Paterno. And literally, a new city gets built in the middle of the state. That's right. Because there's nothing else there to draw people there. But it becomes so big that you have to, you know, you got to put in a Walmart and a Wegmans and, you know, all of a sudden State College is what? The fifth or sixth biggest city in the state. It's close to it. I think it's in the top 10 now, whereas 40, 50 years ago, it was a little hamlet that you, you know, you had one road in and one road out again. This is Philadelphia. There's a lot of other, people already do a lot of other things. And, and go and, to and Temple football the notion, games. The, no, the, the notion, idea the that this that is going to help the city financially in that regard a, it never happens, and B, on the rare occasions it does, those conditions don't apply. Even here. the notion that it will help the Temple football program. I mean, right. USF plays where the Bucks play. You know, Pitt plays where Pittsburgh plays. Both of those teams have have been to BCS Bowls at some point, I believe. Um, yes. it, it's just the, the whole every everything about you know what this is this this is a case of uh, vanity. Well, it's a case of what 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 plagues the rest of our higher education system, which is that you've got people playing with other people's money and right. and. You know, a, a university president cannot afford to per to be Josh Harris and purchase his own professional sports team, so he can just use his college as one. And and you know, I, I, go read the the go read the, the story in the Dallas Morning News. I think it was on yeah. Ken Starr high five and Ken stuck. Hey Kenny, great football team you got here. Let's you know, that's what they like. It's a it's a complete vanity project for the president and everybody else who doesn't actually have to spend their money on it. That's right. That's right. And that's what's going to happen is that. You know, you see this, you see a lot of, I mean, I, they, they come at me on Twitter all the time. These and kids, me too. These kids at, at Temple uh, who want to see a great The alumni team. come at us more than the student body. Yeah, so. um, and uh, who say, well, the, you know, the, the money that, that, was, that was saved, you know, the money that was freed up by cutting those five sports all went to things other than football. Right. Not your life that you got screwed with. Yeah, I mean, A, that. B, that's not a one-time thing. Like, right. You know, there, there. It, it's you cut it out this year, and you say, okay, well, the money we would have spent on these five teams this year goes to soccer and these other Olympic sports. What about next year? The money that you would have spent on those five teams 
is not going to the soccer program. It's not going to these these other pro athletic programs that you kept. It allows you to spend more money on football. Yeah, and te- just a, Temple takes a huge subsidy from the the student from the general fund from the from the fund that is funded by tuition dollars, state dollars, yada yada yada. Their athletic department does. They are already in the red. They they spent twenty million dollars more or something. I I forget what the exact number right. is. I looked it up. They spend twenty million dollars more than they take in, which is twenty million dollars which is coming out of people's tuition. Which is, I don't know if you guys have heard, but tuition is not cheap in this country, and it keeps getting out of control. And one of the reasons is we're using these federal student loan dollars and and these 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 state grants to fund things that have no impact on the educational value of an institution, and that's a problem that affects all of society. And to to it's it's really something that we should be hammering more in our papers and we're not i'll take i'll take it a step further because look i went one of the reasons why i chose the alma mater that i did is that at the time when i was in high school i wanted to go to a school that cared about its sports teams and valued that as an experience on campus that brought the student body together fine but what i object to with a lot of what i'm seeing now is schools around the country is mandatory student fees that go towards athletics and the students have to pay them whether they care or not. Right. But that's where this gets, stuff like this gets paid for. Murph yeah. has, Murph's right. written You're about right. that before. I mean, look at Akron. Look at FIU. Look at UConn. That's ex- that's how they pay for this stuff. Um, you know, it's... it's, it's and the, the debate. can't and opt had, out. Yeah, and we've had this d- discussion before about it's, it's, it's akin to pro- uh, public sector unions. Yeah. You know, the idea being that how the heck can, can public school teachers have a union... Well, what happens when you want more money? Where does that come from? Right. It comes from taxpayers. It comes from everybody. You know, your taxes. You are. Part, we are all the union. Right. We're, you know, like, if, you know, if, if you want. Well, all right. Let's it's, not it's, get. It's let's not get. <laughs> but it's the same sort of principle in that it goes back to these college students. You keep asking them for more and more money. They keep needing more and more loans to pay for them. The government keeps giving them these loans. And what happens? The colleges then raise their tuition rates. What, what it's akin to is using. They are taking out loans using. Their students' credit is right. what it comes down to. Right. You know, I've seen that somewhere else similar yeah. before. Yeah. I don't think it. it worked all that well. Yeah. I want to make one other point about the stadium. Um, ha- having more to do with the fact that there are a lot of people right there in that part of North Philadelphia where they want to build the thing who might be displaced, put out of their homes, affected, whatever, even if they get the jobs even if in they the stadium. Are- the other universities in the region, and I think of Penn specifically because I do know it best. Penn went rampaging into West Philadelphia for many, many years, got burned by it. Hmm. Took them a while, but they did finally start listening when Judith Roden was the president. And now they have at least the building that they've done has been in Grace Ferry, east of the Schuylkill, where there wasn't really, there was a lot of open space. There wasn't anything they were really displacing. Temple, in addition to all of the other things with the stadium, is actually displacing people who have like houses and things like that, where they're trying to build a stadium. I don't. I don't think there's any question that this is a bad idea, and it's bad for the community, and it's bad for the pocketbook, and it's bad for society. It, it, in the fact, the question is, it could it could still get done, just because that's how little we care about uh, all of those things that I just mentioned. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's it, true. It, it, there's there's no debate about the merit of the thing. It, it does not merit it. It does not. It's it's not in any regard. You don't have. You don't. There's no convincing to be done. It's just a matter of if they do it anyway. Yeah, that's it. And I, I don't know if you saw the tweet. I think you tw- you might have retweeted it. Uh, Ed Rendell came out in support of the whole. Of course he did. Of course, you know, he would. 
course he did. And, well, and look, you know, if, if, you know, he, you know, hey, if we start talking about Ed Rendell, we're going to have to get this podcast <laughs> on for the next. Because he's a very valued colleague of mine, and I don't want to have to end up uh, disagreeing. I, 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 I don't want to have to we, disagree with him. We, we are recording with this on gov? Wednesday afternoon, and on Wednesday night, I may actually see Ed because I'm going to be at the Palestra for a big five game, which nobody cares about anymore. But it does make me think, and and for our respective alma maters, Penn and LaSalle, and perhaps for St. Joe's and Villanova too, we live in an era where the rollouts aren't as good as they used to be. And boy, if you're playing Temple, I could think of a whole slew of ones <laughs> oh, to good. come up with. It'd be, it'd be a lot of reason to throw toilet paper. Yeah, I don't even know what rollout means. Through. Anyway, all right. Well, look, we've covered a lot. Um, I, uh, uh, I just want to say, I, the Pope does not offend me. I have a great, no. I have a great respect for for religion. I'll, I'll leave that the, to the two of you. It's not my area of expertise. <laughs> so go ahead. And the Catholic Church. It, it offends me that we ended up spending eight million dollars. You know, when when. Meanwhile, and shutting every, down an entire every city. citizen of Philadelphia was was I couldn't even get a hamburger on on yeah. Saturday night. We acted like a giant monster that, was riding out of Tokyo Bay that, and coming to attack that us. That offends me. Yeah. And so does the PPA. If you want to start, we can do a podcast <laughs> on the PPA sometime. Next week's podcast: all the things that offend Murph. We're going to talk about. We're going. We're just going to have Mike get up we, here. We've had some long shows already, <laughs> including gonna, this one. We're going to have. We're just going to have Mike go on a rant about public sector unions. <laughs> I'm going to go a rant about organized religion and PPA, and we're just going to offend everybody we possibly can. Sounds like a plan. So look forward to that next week. For Jonathan Tannenwald, for David Murphy, I'm Mike Sielski. Later. Later.